content warning. This episode contains explicit language and material. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Bobby. I'm Sarah. I'm Sam. I'm Shauna. And this is Speaking of Murder. So, yay. <laughs> yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shauna wasn't able to actually make it in for live recording today. So, she's on the phone. Um, so, her, her audio quality might not be the greatest, but we're, we're doing what we can. Yeah. We're all really going through it right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, not a, it's not a good last four or five days. No, well, there's there's been some some sickness going around, <laughs> and today snow. Yeah, fun kind of. I like the snow. Not a fan at all, even a little bit. I like to look at the snow. I don't want to be outside in the snow or drive in the snow. But the snow is pretty. No, I want to be out in it. <laughs> no, I'm know. getting that weird mouth teeth salivating thing just thinking about walking on the snow and it's the the crunch gets uh, to you flip and hate it <laughs> I hate it so sarah's telling us a story today right yes all right uh, a long story so be ready okay i'm ready well everybody else ready sure Kay. sure am all right well this story starts on may 31st 1985 going back yes it is the last day of school for a girl named sharon faye smith everybody calls her sherry so from here on out it'll be sherry sherry smith she's 17 years old and is graduating from lexington high school in south carolina um the next couple days of her life was supposed to be super busy. She not she was supposed to graduate on June 2nd, which at graduation she would have been singing the national anthem. So she was a singer. After graduation, Sherry would be leaving to go on a cruise with her friends to celebrate this huge accomplishment. Okay, so she had a busy couple days ahead okay uh sherry is the middle child of three born to bob and hilda smith good name <laughs> i feel like every story i do there's a bob or a robert very weird so she had an older sister named dawn and a younger brother named robert jr it's a common name <laughs> there's a lot of us they were a very close family and were highly regarded and influential in their community of Lexington. Uh, so, like, with the church, with the community, everybody knew them. Gotcha. Sherry was a very pretty, outgoing, smart, and positive person. Everyone that knew her said you could always rely on her to make you feel better if you were feeling down. 
So just so we know, she's got blonde hair, blue eyes. And she's one of those people with contagious happiness. Yes. Like, she's always happy. Okay. On this day, in May, Sherry had been at a pool party at a friend's house. She returned home at 3.38 p.m. Before driving down her long driveway, she stopped to check the mail. Her father was working at his desk, and he saw her pull in from the window. But after, like, five or ten minutes, he realized he did not hear Sherry come inside the house. So he looked out the window again, and her car was still sitting at the end of the driveway. So just for context, their driveway is really long. But you can see the end of it from their two-story house. Gotcha. I mean, was the car parked? Was it still running? Doors open? Anything like that? Well... He started to feel concerned, so he jumped into his car and sped down their driveway. Oh, you weren't kidding. That's yes. Have you got to drive down there to get there quickly? Yeah. Right. You have to hop in your own car to get to the end of your driveway? Yeah, it's pretty. they had a pretty long driveway. He had every right to feel concerned because Sherry's car was still there, but she was gone. The engine was still running. And her driver's side door was wide open. Her purse was still in the passenger seat. There were bare footprints leading from her car to the mailbox, but none coming back. And the mail was, like, spread out on the ground in front of the mailbox. You said there was footprints? Yeah. Like, like barefoot? Yeah. Like, no shoes on? Or, like, bare feet? Like... No, like, like a bear. she had no <laughs> shoes on. She had been at a pool party. Oh, okay. So she had driven home without her shoes. Her shoes were still in the car also. Oh, so they were her footprints. They were her footprints leading from her car door going to their mailbox. But the mail was scattered on the ground in front of the mailbox. And there were no footprints of hers going back to her car. Interesting. So... He raced back to the house to call the police. At the same time, her mother, Hilda, went to the mailbox to see for herself. Police right away knew Sherry didn't run away, obviously. She not only had a lot to look forward to in the next couple of days, she was diabetic. Oh, shit. And would never leave without her medication. So, yeah, police were... We're like, no, this something bad happened here. Um, the Lexington County Police Department immediately organized a manhunt. It became the largest search in South Carolina history at the time, but that didn't matter because they found nothing. Nothing. Well, outside of the footprints, right? But they were her footprints. They found like no evidence of like where she went or what happened to her it was just her car her stuff was still in the car her footprints were there but there were no footprints leading away from the mailbox anywhere so it's like she walked to the mailbox and then disappeared i mean alien spaceship style abducted (laughs) just vertical yeah pretty much except way worse than that all sherry's family could do is sit and wait bob would later say For the first time in my life as a father, 
and protector of my household, I was not in charge of my home. Because police set up in the Smith family home for a while. Like, they used it as, like, a headquarters, almost. I mean, honestly, I I would almost prefer that, you know, than right. it, have yeah. it be there at the house. So I, I'm kept abreast of what's going on at all times. Right. I, and I'm not relying on, you know, calling the police department and going through well, I need to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so until you finally get someone who doesn't have answers for you. Right. But they did, they had like, from what I read, they had like a, a police van set up outside. Like they put uh, wire taps on the phones because like in case she was taken for ransom or anything like that. So they were recording phone calls. They were searching for, by foot, air, like everything to try to find her. So on June 2nd, two days after her disappearance, phone calls started. A man called the Smith home with a distorted voice and asked to speak to Sherry's mother, Hilda. He told her that Sherry was with him. He even described the yellow and black bathing suit she was wearing under her clothes the day she disappeared. He told her that Sherry was fine and that they were watching TV together. He also told her they would be receiving a letter in the mail the next day, but at no point did he ask for any ransom. I'm a little confused then. Just checking in with the folks. Hey, y'all, got your daughter. You know, shit's cool. We're just watching, you know, Nickelodeon, whatever. I know, like, we're just chilling watching TV. Just want to let y'all know, like, I'm I'm running out of Captain Crunch. Me, <laughs> might need y'all to run to the store, pick some up, you know, whatever. But uh, oh, we'll let you know. What? Yeah. Oh, it only gets better. Well, it doesn't get better. I... It only gets worse. So because he said you're getting this letter, the next morning... Uh, the police took Bob and went to the post office to search for the letter. Just like he said, there was a letter addressed to the Smith family. This letter was written on paper from a yellow legal pad. It was two pages long and written in Sherry's handwriting. Her father was the first to read the letter. At the top of the page was written, Last Will and Testament. Oh, no. The date was 6-1-1985 in one corner, and the time in the other corner said 3.58 a.m. In the letter, she wrote she loved her family very much and that she didn't want this to ruin their lives. But the most gut-wrenching part of the letter was she requested a closed casket for her funeral. The fear she had had to be like, Completely overwhelming, and it makes me sick to my stomach. But he made her write this to her parents. I can't even imagine. I'm kind of at a loss for words, honestly. Like, I'm not really sure what to say. It's like she knew her death was going to be bad enough that she would need a closed casket. Okay. So her father had the horrible task of telling her mother what the letter said. The police sent the letter to the um, South Carolina Law Enforcement Crime Lab where it would be examined by a forensic document examiner for clues. 
um, they were looking for like fibers, fingerprints, or any discrepancies in spelling or handwriting. The man called later that same afternoon with the same distorted voice. He asked Hilda if she received the letter, to which she replied they had. He asked her if she believed him, to which she replied she wasn't sure because she had not heard from Sherry and didn't know if she was okay. To that, he replied, you will know in two to three days and hung up. So later that same night, he called again and told Hilda, Sherry is a part of me, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. No. Our souls are now one. Now that is a direct quote from him. That's, it really makes it sound like he ate at least part of her body. Well, he didn't. He's like almost trying to tell them like, God told me to do this is where he's going with it. Mm, I don't know. Sounds a lot like cannibalism to me. It does, but there was no proof that he I mean, all it does to me is make me feel like he did very unspeakable things to her while killing her. Kind of like, I don't know. Like he had a spiritual awakening while murdering her, essentially. Could be. I well, mean, isn't that a thing where a lot of murderers will say that it's some kind of, you know, out, not necessarily an out of body experience, but some kind of spiritually related experience where they just feel uh, almost euphoric yeah well yeah a lot of murderers say that that it's that's why they do it is because they get that high and then that high goes away obviously and then that's why they continue to murder is they're always chasing that high like not to cut forward but is this somebody that they know i guess we'll get there you'll get there but i'll answer your question no because this feels like this was planned, like he's been watching them. Well, he, it. Okay, I guess we'll get there. That, that, yeah. wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Okay, so he was obviously enjoying taunting the Smith family, like that he was getting enjoyment out of it. The next day, June 4th, the man called again. This time, Sherry's sister Dawn answered the phone. He told her that at 3.10 in the morning on June 1st, Sherry wrote that letter. He then said at 4.58 a.m., their souls became one. When Don asked him what he meant by, the, by that, he told her not to ask questions and to ask that Sheriff James Metz stop searching for Sherry. So he wanted the cops to stop looking. Uh, Hilda pleaded in the background for him not to hurt her daughter. He said Sherry loves and misses y'all. Get good rest tonight. Good night. Fucking no way. Like, what an asshole. Yeah, yeah that was my thought. Is, God, that's some asshole shit. What a fucking he asshole. He is a fucking asshole. The next day, around noon, he called again. He told Hilda to listen carefully and started giving her directions to a spot 18 miles outside of town. He ended the call by saying, We're waiting. God chose us. This this is such a what's in the box moment. I was literally thinking the same thing. <laughs> so Hilda gave the information to the police and begged them to let her go with them. But they told her to stay back, unsure of what they were going to find. Police found Sherry's body exactly where the man 
led them to. It was behind an old Masonic lodge just lying on the ground right out in the open. That's a really strange place to... I'm just... I don't know. That just strikes me as a really odd place to find or to for someone to leave a body behind a Masonic lodge. Right. I know. Like... like mm, uh, it is giving you, like, sacrificial vibes. <laughs> yeah, it's... He's part of the Illuminati, is what I'm taking away from this. I think he's just a fucked up individual and drove by that place a lot. Or that. But the autopsy showed Sherry had been dead for about four days. The exa- So he was taunting them that entire time. Yes. The examiner estimated she had died about 12 hours after she was abducted. Which means that he abducted her, had her write the letter... And then when promptly... they became spiritually one, the poli- the police believed that when he told Dawn four forty eight a.m. that was him giving the exact time he k- killed Sherry was four forty eight a.m. He made her write the letter at three ten. The condition of her body made it impossible to determine her cause of death. But they thought it could have been suffocation because she had duct tape residue on her face and her hair had been cut to remove the duct tape. They also could not find any evidence on her body because she was in the elements for too long. So they couldn't even tell if she had been sexually assaulted. Because what I'm going to tell you now is that it was really like uncharacteristically hot. For the beginning, the end of May, beginning of June in South Carolina that year. Like, it was in the 90s to 100 degrees already. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. And that kind of temperature out in the elements Plus, I mean, the humidity, I'm sure, there is insane also. Yeah. I'm just thinking of, even without that, the heat and wildlife. The, uh, uh, a body isn't going to last very long out there. The decomposition no. is going to go quick. So the FBI created a profile of the man they thought was responsible. They said police should be looking for a fleshy, homely young man, homely young white man, in his mid-20s to early 30s. They said he would have above average intelligence and have a knowledge of electrical systems because he was using something to disguise his voice in the phone calls. They also believed he was reading from a script during the phone calls because while listening to the recordings, he would stumble and then go back to the beginning of the sentence and start over. So they thought he had everything he was saying he wrote out first. This led them to believe he wasn't impulsive. Oh, this guy sounds like an engineer. So he obviously had been planning this out. The FBI also thought he would be divorced. They characterized him as an organized killer and believed he had been planning this for years. I feel like that might be a little bit of an overestimation. I don't know about years. I mean, I don't know. He could have been. Or maybe he was, but it wasn't specific to this girl. He was just planning out how he would carry out a murder. Yeah, I don't think they thought he was planning to kill her for years. They were just saying he had been planning to To kill kill somebody for years. Like, he had been trying to figure out how to do it without getting caught for years. Right. Formulate the plan. Insert the victim. Right. 
So even after Sherry's body was found, her killer kept calling the Smith home. He really liked talking with Dawn. Of course he did. On June 6th, he called again and told Dawn he was going to turn himself in the next day. Bullshit. But he was also considering killing himself instead. (laughs) All right, just real quick. Does anyone else see similarities between this killer and the weepy voice killer? Yeah, there are similarities. I was thinking the same thing, Bobby. Yeah, there's very much similarities. Yeah, the the phone call where he's like, no, just listen. Yeah. And now it's exactly what the weepy voice killer did. And then distorting his voice in some way and then being like, "Mm, I might turn myself in, but I also might kill myself. Who knows? Who knows? Oh, feeling cute. Might delete later. (laughs) Yeah, I think the thing that the both of them have in common is they wanted attention. Like they wanted to be caught. But at the same time, they didn't. They just wanted the attention. Right. Um, there were times he would mix up Don and Sherry. He said everything had gotten out of control and all he wanted was to have sex with Don. When she questioned his mistake, he said he meant to say Sherry. Wait, remind me. Who's Don again? Her, her sister, sister. Her older sister. Oh, okay. Okay. So... He even called them on the night of Sherry's funeral. Oh, my God. Speaking with Dawn, he went into detail about how he killed her sister and the different ways he sexually assaulted her. He told Dawn that he let Sherry make her own decisions when it came to her death. Like, somehow, that made it less brutal. I was going to say, no, bullshit. Well. Uh, If there's a form you fill out for that, I just... Choose the, you know, old age option. Check that box. Well, he only gave her two, three choices, okay? The three choices were um, he would kill her by shooting her. He would give her a drug overdose or suffocation. Uh, I, she I really would feel chose like suffocation, though? I Honestly, I would probably choose one of the first two. Like, I'm not. Saying, well, you know, it's impossible to tell what you would do in that situation, but I would just think of if I'm going to die regardless, I would rather be as quick and painless as possible. Yeah, I feel like... I, I doubt it I was probably... I feel like a drug overdose and suffocation would be, like, prolonged. Well, no, what I'm thinking is this guy was going to suffocate her any, either way, and it was just him messing with her head the same way he's messing with the family's heads. Like, oh, which way do you want to go? And she picks you know, one of the options that would be quick and relatively painless. And he's like, ah, gotcha. Like a fucking prick. Yeah, we have no idea. Because we're only going by his side of the story, obviously. And he said she chose suffocation. So he wrapped her head with duct tape completely. And she died right in front of him. And now he's telling her sister this. On the day of her funeral, okay, he told Don that God was ready to accept her as an angel, his exact words. Two weeks after Sherry was kidnapped and murdered, on Friday, June 14th, Crime Stoppers aired a reenactment of her kidnapping on TV. On the same day at 4.07 p.m. in broad daylight, 
24 miles from the Smith home, he struck again. It was a sunny day and 98 degrees outside. Um, Nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick, her six-year-old sister Becky, and her three-year-old brother Woody were playing in their the front yard of their family's mobile home in the Shiloh Mobile Home Park. Uh, the Helmicks had only lived here for two weeks. This mobile home park was super small with only 13 trailers total and only one entrance to get in and out. The road like ended at a wooded area. The family didn't have a car, so the mother, her name was also Deborah, was getting a ride to work from a neighbor named Vicky. They were planning to take the kids with them, and then Vicky would watch them until Mr. Helmick got home from work. So the kids were supposed to go with her. Okay. As Mrs. Helmick was leaving the home, Mr. Helmick was getting, getting home. He had got off work early, and he had gotten a ride from his coworker and friend, whose name is Johnny. Because of this, Deborah May and Woody decided to stay with their father and keep playing outside. But Becky went with their mother. So two of the kids stayed. One of the kids went in the car. Mr. Helmick went into the back bedroom to change out of his work clothes, and Johnny sat on the couch. During this time, a silver-gray colored car with red racing stripes turned into the park entrance and drove down to the dead-end portion of the street. He sat there for a few minutes, then turned the car around and drove slowly back up the street. So he stopped the car near the Helmick's trailer, got out, left the engine running. At the same time, a neighbor named Ricky that lived four trailers down was in his kitchen making orange juice. And despite the hot weather, he had his windows open instead of his air conditioning on. He saw a white male get out of that car, grab Deborah May by the wrists from behind, and then take off running towards his car. The car was speeding away as he ran out of his trailer towards the Helmick's trailer. Mr. Helmick had heard one of the children screaming but thought they were just playing until Johnny said, one of your kids is yelling and hollering out there. He ran outside and saw Woody scared and shaking in a bush on the side of the trailer. He couldn't understand what the boy was saying, but that's when he heard the neighbor yelling at him, did you just see that man take your daughter? In the shock and not even sure what was happening, he searched all around for Deborah. When he realized that she was gone, he rushed back to Johnny, and they jumped into his car and headed down to the intersection. Mr. Helmick jumped out of the car, blocked the road, and started asking if anyone had seen a car speeding in any direction. At the same time, a Richland County Sheriff's car was coming towards him he started running towards the officer yelling someone has taken my daughter the officer radioed for backup but it was too late deborah may and her abductor were gone please tell me that that neighbor got a look at this guy he did the 
sad thing is though he didn't get the full license plate but he did get a description of him did he get any part of the license plate just the first letter so so silver car with red racing stripes and one letter from the license plate did he say what the guy looked like who who took deborah we'll get into that there's like a whole thing about it Way to, like, try, not even try to be inconspicuous. Like, what a fucking vehicle to be abducting people in. Right? Yeah, like that is bold. Like, you, that dude wants to be fucking seen. Yeah, he does. He wants, he, that's what I'm saying. It's like, he wants to hurt people, but he also wants the attention and to be caught. It's, like, really weird. So, meanwhile, Mrs. Helmink is at work. She was in the back room of the restaurant when her boss came, told her to get her stuff that her mother-in-law was coming to get her. He wouldn't tell her what was happening, though. So she thought her neighbor, Vicky, had gotten into a car accident with her other daughter, Becky. She was so worked up by the time her mother-in-law got there that she just ran outside and was, like, screaming for somebody to tell her what was going on. Her mother-in-law answered and was like Deborah May was kidnapped but sh- she genuinely thought they were lying to her because apparently her husband had been trying to get her to quit working for like months and she thought it was like a, a scheme to try to get her to leave work and Some quit her job scare tactic or something yeah to like be like, oh, your daughter got kidnapped because you're working. I mean, that'd be a fucked up scare tactic. Yeah, definitely would. So she figured out quickly when sh- they got back to her house that it wasn't a lie. Well, and honestly, it probably didn't help that, I mean, until, except for obviously true crime fans who listen because of either, you know, for whatever reason that they listen they generally understand the fact that, yes, this does happen every day all over the right. world. The The average person who isn't, you know, listening to this stuff and, and learning about what happens is oftentimes in the mindset of that happens elsewhere to other people, right. but it not me, not my me. family. And in 85, there wasn't exactly... You know, uh, a huge true crime fan basis. It was just in its infancy with, you know, America's Most Wanted with John Walsh and stuff like that was just starting to come out in the 80s, I think, right? Yeah, I think so. So this was in the 90s. So this was definitely. Samantha's like, I don't know. Yeah, I I don't remember. (laughs) I know it was it was somewhere around in, you know, the 80s or 90s that that was going on and true crime started getting more uh, mainstream. Yeah. But at that point, it wouldn't shock me at all if she thought, oh, well, this is some kind of scare tactic because, you know, he wants me to quit my job anyway. And that kind of stuff doesn't actually happen. Not in our town. Not not to my family. Well, I mean, they just moved there two weeks ago, though. Yeah. yeah how too. would you how would you know? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like, I'm sure that's what she was thinking in her head, too, is like, we've literally just lived here for two weeks. Is something that bad really going to happen to me in two weeks of living in this? place oh i would be extra skeptical being there for only two weeks the world is a scary place okay so police quickly turned to their only eyewitness to the crime the neighbor ricky he described the man as white between 30 and 35 years old 5 9 215 pounds with a beer belly 
He had closely cropped brown beard and mustache and brown receding hair. He told them he was wearing white short pants and a light colored sleeveless shirt and had something in his hand that looked like a white bag. When he approached the kids, he leaned down to talk to them and that's when he grabbed Deborah. She started screaming and kicking. He saw her feet hitting the hood of the car as the man threw her to the passenger side. He described the car as a 1982 to 1983 silver Grand Prix or Monte Carlo with racing stripes. And he remembered that the car had a South Carolina license plate with the first letter of D. So he had a lot of details. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of information. I wonder how how easy it would be to narrow down the car. I mean, you got a silver Monte Carlo or Grand Prix with a license plate that starts with D. That'd probably narrow the list quite a bit. Yeah. Even if it is only one letter, how many silver Grand right. Prix or with red you know, racing stripes? Well, that's not going to be on the description. It's just going to like uh, you look at the title of your car. It's only got one color on there usually. As far as I'm aware, so it'd probably just say silver Monte Carlo yeah. Grand Prix with you know, and then the license plate number. So I mean, that probably narrow it down to I mean, at most maybe a, a couple hundred across the state. I don't know. I don't know. Was that, that detail anywhere? No, it didn't really go into much detail about the car until later. So after speaking to Ricky, the officers also talked to Woody. He was still very scared and shaking. All he would say is the bad man said he was coming back to get me. These two abductions scared Lexington and Richland County to the point people were not allowing their kids to play outside. And it's the beginning of summer. Like they're just getting out of school, out of school. and they're not allowed to they're not allowing them to go outside because it seems like this dude is just picking whoever is outside and yeah, easy. Some serial snatcher running around town. So Ricky did help the police make a sketch of the man. Um, he saw take Deborah and tips came in, but none of them amounted to anything. At twelve seventeen AM on Saturday, June twenty second, so this is eight days after Deborah's abduction, the Smiths received a phone call. Don answered the phone and the operator came on. I have a collect call from Sherry Faye Smith. She accepted the phone call. Wait a minute. Hadn't Sherry's funeral already happened? She had already yes. been found? Okay. The caller started by thanking Don for answering the phone and said, you know this isn't a hoax, correct? He asked if she found Sherry's ring. She answered no. Then he said, okay, I don't know where it is, okay? Uh, you know, uh, God wants you to join Sherry Faye. It's just a matter of time. This month, next month, this year, next year. You can't be protected all the time, you know? So he's threatening Dawn now? Yes. Oh, boy. Then he says, have you heard about Deborah May Helmick? I really thought you were going that we're trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. No. Have you heard about our extended warranty? Nope. It's the killer. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
If you Please could continue. See, if you could see the the eye roll level that's going on right here with me, between <laughs> between them, not me. Um, Don asked. Don answered, "No, she had not heard of Deborah." Then he continued, "The ten-year-old Helmick, Richland County. Yeah. Uh. Uh huh. Okay. Now listen carefully. Go one north. Well." Bill's Grill. Does that make any sense to you? No, but this is how he's talking to her, okay? Go three and a half miles through Gilbert. Turn right. Last dirt road before you come to stop sign. And at two notch road, go through chain and no trespassing sign. Go 50 yards and to the left. Go 10 yards. Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. This dude's definitely writing this down and reading it later. Yeah. This call was traced to a phone at Palmetto Plaza Shopping Center in Sumter, South Carolina, which is 50 miles from the Smith home. The payphone? Yes. They had been tracing his calls this whole entire time, but... Yeah, because he's still been repeatedly calling right. Don. And they were tracing them, but he was smart enough to know like how long it would take them to get from the Smith home to where he was so he would never stay on the phone. Like he would be gone way before they got there. Was he giving Don the coordinates yes. to Deborah, thinking that like she would go looking there herself or something? I don't think so. He was just giving them to her because... He has this sick fascination yeah, has, with killing her now. Yeah, he's now obsessed with her. With his understanding of how a lot of this stuff works, I'm wondering if he's law enforcement... I don't get that. Well, we'll find he, out. he knows, A, that they're going to be tracking him or tra at least tracing the phone call because, I mean, he's calling from a distance where he knows response time is going to be delayed. He's staying on the phone shorter amounts of time. He's somehow keeping up with what they're doing, it seems like. And I doubt all of that is going to be public information. I feel like he's got to have some kind of inside information. Either he's close to someone or is himself is what I it's that's the way it comes off to me. Well, you do have to remember the FBI are saying he's got better than average intelligence. So he's not stupid. He like and he's been pl like planning this. So who's to say he wasn't sitting in his house going, OK, well, this payphone is this distance from their house so I can stay on the phone for this amount of time and then be gone before anybody even shows up. 50 miles is a long way. Yeah, for them to get to the phone before he's gone. Right. So police rushed to the location the caller had described in his phone call with Don. And there, in a wooded area, they found the decomposed body of a child. There was really... Nothing they could get from the body, just like with Sherry. The time that had passed and the extreme hot weather took away any evidence. The med medical examiner said that suffocation was a good possibility, but because of decomposition, he couldn't be sure. After testing and fingerprint analysis, they determined that the body was Deborah May Helmick. Because wasn't he... Gave the location of her to Don 
eight days after her disappearance, right? Mm -hmm. So she, yeah, she was probably laying out there, unfortunately, for 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 the whole the eight days, the whole eight days. Because I'm sure he killed her pretty quickly, just like he did Sherry. Yeah, he wasted no time. At this point, police were no closer to figuring out who this man was until forensic document examiner used an electrostatic detection apparatus on the last will and testament written by Sherry. Since it was written on a piece of paper from a legal pad, instead of just a loose-leaf piece of paper, there could be impressions of things written before. It worked, and the machine detected what looked like a list of phone numbers to call in case of an emergency. There was one phone number that was near complete. All it was missing was the final number. The first three digits began with 205, which meant it was an Alabama number. Remember, they're in South Carolina. This oh, is shit. an Alabama number. The next three numbers were 837, which was the exchange for Huntsville, Alabama. Detectives had nine out of 10 digits, so they started to call people using the remaining nine numbers. So they just started with zero and called people until they found somebody that knew someone in South Carolina. So that was like, why would this person in South Carolina have your phone number kind of a deal? Gotcha. So they found a young man. Um, They asked him if he had connections in South Carolina, and he did. He told them his parents lived in saluda county south carolina their names were ellis and sharon shepherd no the county you're talking about you said salutas right Mm -hmm. um is that nearby where they are it's 15 miles from the smith home okay what a coinky dink right detectives reached out to ellis who told them he had been on vacation with his wife at the time sherry had disappeared and they had a house sitter named Larry Jean Bell. So he was supposed to look after their house and their land while they were gone. Ellis described Bell as 36-year-old white male, 5 foot 10 with a flabby belly, reddish brown hair, short, chopped beard and mustache, and weighed around 180 pounds. But Ellis pointed out that he had lost weight while they were gone on vacation. Bell had been working for the Shepherds since the spring of 1985 as an electrician. And they had even worked together that same day that the police showed up at their house. The Shepherds had taken a three-week vacation from Mother's Day. It started May 13th. Uh, Bell had taken them to the airport and at the time had a full beard and mustache. So when he dropped them off, he had full facial hair. They got back home on June 3rd. So this is, she went missing on May 30th, 31st. Mm-hmm. So they got home on June 3rd. Bell picked them back up from the airport. Mrs. Shepard noticed he had shaved his facial hair short and asked him about it. His, he responded by saying he was getting summarized, like literally. Ready for summer for the heat? Yeah. It just, Uh. I was like, really? (laughs) Really? That's your response? I'm getting summarized? 
Yeah, I'm just shedding my winter coat, you know. <laughs> it's cool. But then he changed the subject. Like, and all he wanted to talk to them about was Sherry's abduction. Because mm. they were gone when it happened. The officers played a portion of the phone call about Deborah to the shepherds. And they immediately said it was Larry Jean Bell. Oh, even with the distortion, yes. they recognized they him said, in an instant. This is your voice. This is his voice. We know it's him. Oh shit! So, y'all ready to talk about Larry Jean Bell? Uh, yeah. Okay. He was born on October thirtieth, nineteen forty-nine, in Ralph, Alabama, which made him thirty-six years old in nineteen eighty-five. He was one of five children. And his family bounced back and forth between Alabama, South Carolina, and Mississippi. They moved a lot. After he graduated from high school, he went to a trade school to become an electrician. When he was 20, he returned to Columbia, South Carolina, and he married a 16-year-old girl, and they had a son. So FBI said he probably had a wife. In 1970, he spent a short time in the Marines. He was discharged after he suffered a knee injury when he accidentally shot himself while cleaning his gun. Accidentally. Right. In 1971, he worked for a short time at the Department of Corrections in Columbia. Bell and his family moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina in 1972 and the couple divorced in 1976, his ex-wife and his son moved to a completely different state to get away from him. Well, good on him. Yep. So, a warrant was issued for his arrest on June 27th, 1985. When he was arrested, officers made Bell listen to the recordings of the phone calls he made to the Smith family. He claimed that it was not this Larry Jean Bell that made the calls, even saying at one point, that didn't sound like me. I just don't believe I'm involved in it. I don't <laughs> believe I'm involved in it. I'm not sure. Wait a second. I just... So is there just like a million Larry Jean Bells uh, out there? Uh, like, that can't be this Larry Jean Bell. It's got to be one of the other hundred Larry Jean Bells out there. I guess. What an idiot. I just don't believe I'm involved in it. I don't believe... <laughs> I mean, I may have, but I don't believe I was a part of it. That's the most, <laughs> oh my god, that hurts my head. Like he, I feel like that's pretty much admitting that he's involved in it. It's I don't, I don't believe. It doesn't sound like me. I don't believe <laughs> I would do that. I mean, that's not something Larry Jean Bell would do. Well, not me, Larry Jean Bell. You know what? No, exactly that. This dude. Fully is the type of asshole who talks about himself in the third, in the person. third person. Larry Jean Bell wouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't believe Larry Jean Bell would. You are correct. Oh, oh my seriously? god, is he talking the third person? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Oh. <laughs> third person, Mr. Larry Jean Bell. So after <laughs> Sheriff Metz told him they know for a fact that he did it, Bell leaned back inside. There's no doubt about it. God didn't put me here to take somebody's life. I know, and you know what happens to me now. They're going to go for the death, the death penalty. They're going to try and kill Larry Jean <sighs> Bell. Larry Jean Bell says so. <laughs> Sorry. 
I don't understand. I don't understand people that talk in the third person. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he was a aspiring wrestler and he was just trying to perfect his. Oh, like you yeah. smell what the, <laughs> the the rock is cooking. <laughs> like You smell Larry Jean Bell? Yeah. Yeah, he smells like shit. After this, he asked Sheriff Metz if he could talk to the Smith family. Because if it ended up that he was the murderer after all, if it ended up he was the murderer after all, he wanted God (laughs) and them to forgive him. He wanted the Smiths to forgive him? Yes. If if he just so happened to be the guy. Yeah. If it turns out after all, I'm the murderer. If he just so happened to be the guy, like, I'm sorry, if he wasn't (laughs) the guy and is innocent, why does he give two shits if the Smith family forgives him for any reason? Like, he's telling on himself, pretty much. I, I feel like he thinks he's being really clever that with he, this. He whole, thinks that he's know, like... If it does turn out to be Larry Jean Bell, Larry Jean Bell is probably real sorry <laughs> about it. Larry Jean Bell was probably directed by God. I'm not saying, you know, he was or nothing, but, you know, if he was, here's <laughs> how Larry Jean Bell would have done it. No. Not saying that he did, but here's what he did, if he did it, maybe, possibly. <laughs> I feel like he has, he only wants to call the Smiths because he's romanticized this relationship between him and Dawn. And he is like, oh my gosh, like she has to forgive me for what I did before I die. Like thinking that there's going to be some romantic partnership between the two of them. Well, let's find out. The police actually thought by letting him meet with the Smiths, it would help him, it would help them get him to confess. So they granted his request. At around 6.30 p.m. that night of his arrest, Dawn and her mother were put face-to-face with Larry Jean Bell. I don't think I could do that. No, Hello. I don't think I could do Larry that. Larry Jean Bell's awful sorry about what he did. Larry Jean Bell says that God talked to Larry Jean Bell. <laughs> I don't think Bobby's going to let that go. I'm not. This guy's a maroon. It's going to get worse. He's an ignoramus. It only gets worse. I don't think that I could willingly have done that. Like, just go sit in front of him and listen to his bullshit. Well, as soon as he opened his mouth, they both knew it was him that had been calling their house and terrorizing them. He spoke to Don. Thank you all for coming. Sheriff Metz said, the evidence is here. But this person sitting here, I could not have done this ungodly thing. Right now, I don't know how to explain it. I know it's touched a lot of people and destroyed a lot of lives. When I click on that reason, I will let your family know. (laughs) So he's pretty much saying, I know I'm being blamed for this, but I didn't do it. And I can't come up with a reason in my head why I would. But if I do, I'll let you know. Is this dude, does he have like a multiple personality disorder or something like that because he is definitely approaching this as differentiating between himself and his body like his body is this autonomous thing that goes off and does things beyond his control well i'm gonna give you a spoiler here from the very beginning he's trying to come off as insane like that his whole doing it on purpose goal is to make people believe he's insane. That he's Mm. cuckoo banana brains, when really he's just a fucking idiot. Or so smart. Well, yeah, he's he's 
it's hard it it's yeah. like a i don't know well dawn snapped back okay she was like i recognize your voice i know it's you i talked to you on the phone do you recognize my voice he replied i recognize your face from the TV and the pictures in the paper. It's just the bad side of me that caused all this horrible destruction in people's lives. Your sister and that little girl, it's just something in me. They they continue to like argue back and forth with each other for an hour with him acting like he didn't know what happened. He didn't know what happened, but it's just something in me that caused all of this destruction. But it wasn't me but there's something in me so i've heard of this before where killers will separate in their mind the actions that they took from who they are as a person right because they that's how they live normal lives and like are married and have children and whatever is they separate it but it's not like a doesn't make you insane it's just you have the capability of taking this thing that you did and putting it into the back of your head and ignoring it compartmentalization yeah you can that's the word i was looking for you compartmentalize it and a lot of especially serial killers are really good at that because that's why they can get married and have children and look like these normal dudes living in society and in reality they're fucked up individuals because it's what like a light switch that goes on yeah pretty much it's like yeah i did that but really i didn't do it i mean that's not what i really believe in but i i mean i did it it was my dark passenger yeah that's why they all like to blame i don't agree with what i did but i did it anyway yeah that's that's why the whole like him saying how ungodly of him if he if it was him to have done it yet during all of the phone calls with Don, he's talking about, you know, how she's with God now and, like, all this spiritual bullshit. Right. He's trying to make himself as a person be like, super Like, it would be religious. ungodly of him to have done something like that, yet when he did it, she's now an angel. She's yeah. one of God's angels. Yeah, so that's how he made it, like, oh, it's okay because she went to heaven, and that's, like better than being here almost like it's super weird definitely he kept claiming though that if he knew something he would tell them okay they finally had enough and were just like fuck you and obviously they didn't say that but they got up and left the room. yeah they had it had enough they had had enough i would have had enough after probably five minutes of that right let alone arguing with him for a Flip an hour. An hour? Yeah. Knowing he killed your sister and your daughter. Well, the same day that this happened, officers had gotten permission from the shepherds to serve to search their home since he had been staying there. They took the the original piece of paper that had the emergency phone numbers on it. They collected some hair from uh, the room Belle had been staying in and the bathroom, and they found some red fibers on the mattress cover under his sheet. So when I read this, they said he had like washed the comforter and the sheet themselves. But when they took 
the fitted sheet off the mattress pad was like disgusting and so they took that for evidence um bell actually larry gave them permission to search his 1978 buick riviera he had been driving the day he was arrested inside of that they found a knife and they found the registration card for um the silver car hidden in the trunk and that car's license plate actually started with the letter d and it was registered to larry bell's sister so he had he was using his sister's car he was to using the shit in he was using his sister's car and he had the registration to it hidden in his car under some like blankets and towels and the The next day, officers were given permission by Larry's parents to search their house, which is where he lived. But just to be safe, they got a search warrant also because they didn't want anything to come back on them. Cover your bases. Right. In his room, they found a black starter pistol, which I had to look up what that was. Uh, I would assume that's the kind of pistol that they use to, like, kick off a race like a foot race yes so it's a gun that is not capable of firing live ammunition it only makes noise yeah it's made for blanks they also found 22 caliber bullets in a white paper bag uh they found different styles of ropes and they found several pairs of female silky bikini underwear which you Found out later on that Deborah was wearing a pair of silky underwear that were for an adult. You know, I think I'd really like to introduce this guy to the minister from last week's Missing Persons episode. (laughs) So he can get a hotel $700 castration. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think think we should introduce those two. Let that minister do his work on this guy. Too bad they didn't meet in prison. Um, they f- also found a newspaper article from June 15th with the picture of Sherry folded outward. So it was the newspaper was folded and all you could see was her picture on okay. the newspaper. They found a pair of tennis shoes with what appeared to be two spots of blood on them. And they found a business card from a place called Loveless and Loveless Inc. So this was a landfill topsoil place that was ran by Bell's sister and his brother-in-law. And the significance of this is that it is located directly across the street from the Shiloh trailer park where Helmick lived, where Deborah lived. Oh, so he he was scoping that that area park. out. Bell's trial for the murder of Sherry started on November eleventh, nineteen eighty five. So I'm gonna say he had to have he they did two separate trials. They didn't put both girls into one trial and okay. try them at the same time. That's good. So his trial for Sherry was first with one of South Carolina's best defense attorneys. Jack Swirling 
For the prosecution, they had Donnie Myers, one of the most aggressive death penalty prosecutors in South Carolina. So they're going for the death penalty. Good. Right out of the gate, the defense asked for the trial to be moved to a different county because residents had already been swayed by the media. Um, at first, Judge John Hamilton Smith denied this motion. He's like, no, we're going to do jury selection. But after two days of this, Judge Smith changed his mind and said there was no way for Bell to get a fair trial in, in, town. in Saluda County. So the trial would be moved 127 miles away to Berkeley County, South Carolina. The new trial date was set for January 27th of 1986. Everything was ready to go until Bell's attorney, Swirling, was hospitalized that morning with severe bronchial condition. So they had to postpone the trial again. So it started in February of 1986. I mean, he's in jail this whole time, though, right? Just yes. waiting? At least there's that. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, he's in jail. He is a wackadoo in jail, but he's in jail. <laughs> I think he's just a wackadoo in general. Wait a minute. Is there, do you have stuff about weird shit he was doing in jail? Um, if I remember correctly, yeah. I think there's stuff in here about jail. So mm -hmm. it was raining the day of his new trial. And as Bell got out of the patrol car, which I'm going to say, because it said this in the book I was reading. So the, where he was being held and the courthouse were like catty corner from each other. But they still put him in a patrol car and drove him the catty corner Across to the, the courthouse street. because they, one, didn't trust him, and two, they didn't, all the media and crap, they didn't want him to be walked across the street. So as soon as he got out of the car, Bobby's going to love this, he started yelling, I am Larry Jean Bell. I am not guilty. I am innocent. And I will not get a fair trial. Larry Jean Bell didn't do it. Let Larry Jean Bell go. <laughs> Why put so much emphasis on, like, announcing your fucking name? Like, when it's clear. People know who you are? It's clear that you did it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't just, he didn't just scream who he was. He also was wearing a pin that said, I am Larry Jean Bell, and I am not guilty, and I am the walrus. The walrus? I am the walrus. Why Did is he that make so himself a person? The Beatles. The Beatles song. Did he make himself a personalized pin? Yeah. Like, bro? It doesn't say where he <laughs> got this pin. It just said he was wearing this pin that said, I am Larry Jean Bell, and I am not guilty, and I am the walrus. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this guy. He's just, like, doing arts and crafts in jail, like, making himself a cute little pin to wear. Like, they will know my name. Yeah. Larry Save. Jean Bell. Save Larry Jean Bell. So he was quiet during the first part of jury selection, but after a recess. That's when, surprising. Right? 
Well, after a recess, when he was led back into the courtroom, he yelled out, Your Honor, for the record, I'd like to state that Jean Bell is not a vicious, mean, dangerous individual, and anyone that can say otherwise doesn't know me personally. No, it's just Larry. Larry's an asshole. Gene <laughs> Bell is fine. That's what I was thinking. Like, it's all Larry. <laughs> Larry's who you want, not Gene Bell. I'm Gene. <laughs> Larry Gene Bell is, is a mixture of two folks. That Larry guy is the one you want. I'm just See, Gene. this is why this case is so long, because so many of the things that he, like, said, I'm not trying to, like, give him this much attention, but it's so insane. I'm like, I can't leave this out. Like, it... <laughs> you go ahead. You put Larry Gene Bell in jail and... I mean, Larry deserves to be there, but But I'm, Gene Bell's going to be suffering the entire suffer time. He's suffer like the Dickens here's how much that he's, he's going to be getting. Sorry, continue. Here's how much. After jury selection resumed, Bell stood up and yelled out, Why in the hell am I being held at the gates of hell for this crime that I did not commit? Explain this to me. I'm surprised he didn't go full poet on this. Why the hell is Larry Jean Bell going to jail? I... The evidence, <laughs> there's, so evidence there's so much evidence. There's so much evidence against him. So Judge Smith ordered him to be quiet or he would be removed from the courtroom. He did not have any more outbursts that day, but he did the second day of jury selection. At one point, he said, Your Honor, I can't take this anymore. Gene Bell is not responsible for this. This is not right. I want to see my doctor. This is not right. Yeah, why is he now suddenly cutting out the Larry? It was Larry Jean Bell all the way up until this point, and now it's like, wait. He's changed personalities, apparently. Jean Bell is 100% innocent here, folks. Larry is the guy that you want. And Larry ain't here right now. You can leave a message with Jean. I'll get it to him. <laughs> we'll, we'll use our internal memo service. <laughs> We got a whole tube system up there. We'll just pop a note in there. It air suction it up. It'll land right in Larry's sorry. office. It's a wreck in there. He's crazy. Well, his lawyer, Swirling, spoke up and asked for a recess. He said that his client wasn't communicating with him and they needed a minute during this difficult time. No, his client ain't even home. You only got Gene Bell. You need Larry Gene Bell. Well, are you only going to talk in that accent now for like the rest of this? Am I talking in an accent? Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Sorry. It's Larry Gene Bell. I can't take it. <laughs> Judge Smith answered. He would give them the recess, but he was sick of Bell's outburst. He told him he would be kicked out of court if it would if it continued. Both of them. So Larry and Gene, <laughs> get the hell out. He said he would just continue without Bell. Like he didn't care. I mean, Which, what does he really need to well, be in there for anyway? I, I feel like that could be a problem though, because wouldn't he be? you know, entitled to some kind of, like, isn't he supposed to be there? Yes, he's supposed to be there. Like, but they can't do the proceedings without him, can they? Well, they can what, under like circum... fair trial kind they of They can situation? under circum certain circumstances, but yes, he's 
he could argue like he wasn't there to see how his trial even went down. Yeah, that's ammunition for an appeal right there. Right. Well, court proceeded after the recess and Bell stayed quiet for the rest of that day. Okay. The trial actually started on February 12th with a seven-woman, five-man jury. Witness after witness was called by the prosecution after the opening statements by each lawyer. Swirling did not question uh, Sherry's father or sister, just her mother. So his lawyer only questioned Sherry's mom. And it was just one question. Did you know Larry Jean Bell before your daughter was abducted? Her answer was no. She had already answered that question with the prosecution. Why the fuck would that matter anyway? Don't know. Like, but that was his only question for her. When it was the medical examiner, Dr. Sexton's turn to testify, he explained to the jury what happens to the body after you die and then explained the autopsy results. He explained to the jury that due to decomposition, he could not determine whether Sherry had been sexually assaulted, nor could he make a definite determination of her cause of death. He could only say that she either died from strangulation with a ligature or being suffocated or that she had died due to her medical condition. No, the diabetes. Because during those phone calls, her mother had been telling Larry, who we find out is Larry Jean Bell, had been begging him to constantly give her water and food because she didn't have her medicine yeah swirling cross-examined the doctor and just repeated that he could not prove sexual assault or that she didn't die from her medical condition like that's all he focused on is well you can't prove he sexually assaulted her and she could have just died on her own just like i'm walking to the mailbox hold on let me go walk Forever the hell away from here and just die without my medicine. Well, no, he was saying like, yeah, you can get my client on the kidnapping part, but not the murder part because she could have just died of natural causes from her diabetes while he had her kidnapped. As a result of her kidnapping. Yeah. That would still make him responsible for for her her death. death. I don't know enough about the legal system to say whether that's i i wouldn't say that was probably not first degree but that's you know second degree or some version of manslaughter right at that point like either way he would be responsible that's for what her i death. kept thinking is like what would it matter you still caused her death right and why without the intent of killing her in some way have her right oh last will and testament to her parents like right. that would make no sense if you're just gonna let her die of natural causes he had no flipping clue that she was diabetic when he abducted no, her. No, he had no idea until, I think he had no idea until after she was already murdered when her mother pointed it out and was like, if she's okay, you need to be giving her lots of water and feeding her regularly because she, she was like severely diabetic. Like it, Like she probably did... She probably was, like, super sick when he actually 
did kill her. They're pretty sure he d- did the duct tape around her head thing like he said he did. Because he said that on the phone with Dawn, that yeah. that's what he did. And he suffocated her with duct tape. But because of decomposition and the fact that he cut all the duct tape out of her hair, they had nothing. They couldn't, like, take pieces of duct tape and match it with duct tape at his house to be like, okay, this is, you did this kind of a deal. Yeah, all they had was a little bit of residue on her face. Right, right like, the glue was still in her hair and on her face. Well... Okay, where are we at here? The trial continued on with a million experts. They went over the piece of paper from the yellow legal pad, hairs of Sherry's that were found in the shepherd's home. So he had taken her to the shepherd's home. They found her hair there. Um, And other things that tied Belle to the crime. On Monday, February 17th, It was the defense's turn to call their witnesses. They called a clinical social worker and psychiatrist from the William S. Hall Psychiatric Institute. They had been involved with Bell in 1975 and 76 when he was arrested for attacking other girls and making obscene phone calls to a 10-year-old girl. Oh, my God. So he has a history. He had a history. He told them in their interviews that he wished to find out why he loses control and attacks girls. So, like, in 75 and 76, when he was in the psychiatric institute, he told them he had this problem where he loses control and wants to attack girls. Was that around the time of his divorce? Yeah. He had also told them his mother had died from abdominal cancer seven years prior, but his mother was still very much alive. She was alive in the 80s when he did this to Sherry and Deborah. They said it was the first time ever that someone had done this, like went so far as to kill off their parent. So they diagnosed Bell with something called immature personality, okay? So it's the, a personality trait, disturbance, characterized by childish emotional and behavioral patterns. This can be found in a person no matter how old they are. These people have very little control over their emotions and can switch emotions quickly. Example, they can be laughing and joking and then crying in a blink of an eye. The doctors from the Institute had set up a treatment plan for Bell, but he only showed up to one of those, and he did not return on his own after that. Well, I guess I'm sure he didn't really, I feel like he probably didn't really want to be fixed. He did, though go back to them in 1976 and stayed there for three months, but again, left their treatment and went back about his own business. Another psychologist was called to the stand and pretty much just said that Bell couldn't think logically at times. When he was asked by Swirling if he thought Bell was mentally ill back in 1975 when he he originally interviewed him, the doctor replied, yes, in 1975. So Myers cross-examined this doctor and only asked him by mentally ill 
you don't mean out of touch with reality or insane, do you, doctor? And the doctor responded, no. Like, he didn't think he was currently mentally ill. But he was mentally ill in 1975. Right. He, he literally said, not in any sense of the word. I don't think right now he's mentally ill. So defense, didn't that didn't really help the defense because it was their doctor. All right. Good. <laughs> Good. Your own doctor's proving you wrong about Larry Jean Bell, which, well, by the way, I feel like you just have to say his whole name. You do, and that's like a thing that people, that's like a thing in the crime community where they're like, if a person has three name, like they have three names that could be like a first name or something, they just, you just have to say all three names, and that's how I feel like his is, is you have to say Larry Jean Bell. Larry Jean Bell probably agrees. Well, obviously, because he likes to say his name just as much as everybody else does. Well, except for in reference to this, in which case that was all Larry's fault. Gene Bell has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Once they got to trial. (laughs) All right. So then it was Bell's turn to be put on the stand. He was actually going to go on the stand. Of course. (laughs) The lawyers were trying to play up the insane defense by putting him on the stand that I that was their goal is like he'll go on the stand and make himself, make himself look, look psycho and then the jury's gonna be like okay guys yeah this guy's this looney guy's tunes. looney so he um, stands up drops trow yells pudding and jiggles his junk <laughs> close oh my <laughs> god no it's <laughs> gonna no. say damn <laughs> shout first, out to the guys on supernatural <laughs> first <laughs> of all he wouldn't sit down Oh, really? Oh, my. Mm-hmm. He stood the whole time? Because he claimed there were no chairs at the gates of hell, so he couldn't sit down. Larry Jean uh, Bell doesn't deserve a chair. Larry Jean Bell's going to stand. Larry Jean Bell's going to hell, and he's getting ready right now. Then he just rambled on until Judge Smith had finally just had enough, and he cut him and took a recess. After the break, he went right back to rambling until his lawyer asked him if he got any help while he was in the Institute. His response was, no, no matter what the doctors say, I am mentally ill. I've never done a vicious, mean, dangerous crime. They said I was holding back, but we all know it's important to cooperate with the doctors because they save a person from the electric chair. So he's saying the doctors are lying and saying he's not mentally ill when he knows he's mentally ill. And they're just trying to send him to an electric chair. Mm. (laughs) Mm. No. (laughs) Well, this comment caused so many issues during the trial when the judge tried to have the electric chair statement discarded because that's you can't do that in front of a jury you can't like yeah so he but the jury had already heard it so it's like the hardest thing a judge has to do is be like okay i know you heard that but pretend like you didn't hear that it's a lot easier to be like okay you go out of this room and they can say what they want to say and then you come back well he was already claiming I'm insane, and they're trying to fry me in the electric chair, but I'm insane. But he's not insane. Right. Not even, well, If he was I insane, mean, he wouldn't be yelling that he's insane. Like, no. 
he wouldn't be telling the whole fucking world, I'm mentally ill, I'm fucking insane. No, you wouldn't, because you wouldn't know that you're insane. That would be your normal. Right. He's definitely twisted, but he's very aware of what he's done yeah. and what he's currently doing. Well, the defense was, like, thrilled that Bell had done this in the courtroom because they wanted the, the jury to hear every fucked up word he had to say. Cause it, they thought that would better his insanity plea. Yeah, they were going for this whole image that Bell was insane. And the judge, though, he was, like, not handling it very well and then called another recess. He's like, I can't deal with this, dude. We're taking a break. During this break, Bell approached Myers, who's the prosecutor, okay, told him he was the best. Myers responded with, not yet. I'm still waiting to get you on the stand. Like, I'm not the best until I get a crack at you. And it was another thing of Bell trying to play this, I'm so insane, I'm going to tell this prosecutor in good front job. of all these reporters and shit, like, good job, you're the best at your job. His way of playing insane to me was, like, so stupid. You're being dumb. Yeah, it's not insanity. It's, I don't know, he's, yeah, he's just stupid. Yeah. It's, it's his idea of what insanity would look like, but it's not actually insane and if i was in this courtroom i would have like probably got up and walked away because he was for real on the stand for over six hours oh my god and no. they never really asked him anything they just let pertaining him to on. sherry or the case so I can't believe the judge allowed that to go on for that long. To yeah. Just listening to him ramble on for fucking six hours, right? You can only imagine the amount of times he said not only his own name, but something about Ugh. God's will and uh, they're out to get me and right? the, the demons, <sighs> yada, yada. The, ga the gates of hell, Bobby. He's yeah, that courtroom specifically is yeah. the gates of hell. Satan's forked penis is waiting for him and blah, blah, blah. Well, the prosecutor, Myers, finally had enough. He was like, I'm over this. And he just starts objecting. He's like, I'm done. And he objects by saying, none of this is relevant. You're, this is like six hours of nothing. Of nonsense. Right. Well, pretty much, Judge Smith was also over it, so he called a recess again and took the lawyers in his chamber and told Swirling to get Bell under control, or he would. When put back on the stand, he, quest he was questioned about the phone calls. He said it wasn't his voice. He was questioned about Deborah May, but he said he only knew about the crime through visions. He had. With his eyes, because he was there. <laughs> well, he was saying he had, like, mental visions and even claimed he called Crime Stoppers and reported his vision, even like giving just, them a name. Like he's one of those fucking psychics yeah. who call the cops. Yeah, he said he started having visions about her and then called Crime Stoppers about it. They just came to me in a dream. When asked to describe the person or give information about them, he said, 
how? I wasn't involved. It was in a vision. Yeah, I was asleep. <laughs> Larry Jean Bell called those four <laughs> folks and sleep distorted his voice while I got visions from the back of his eyeballs into my brain. <laughs> and I reported it. Because Jean Bell... Stand-up guy. Stand-up guy. Larry Jean Bell. Piece of shit. But how would he know, Bobby? It was just a vision. He wasn't involved? No, he wasn't. It was Larry was involved. He caught the visions in between Larry's eyes and Gene's brain somewhere. Oh, my gosh. His accent's back. (laughs) Yes. I I go in. I'm not not trying to. (laughs) Just going in and out of it. Well, at this point, after seven hours of testimony, his own lawyer let out a sigh, turned his back on Larry Jean Bell, and said he had nothing further to ask him. He's like, I'm done too. This is over. So on February 19th, which was the 10th day of Jesus the trial, Christ. Myers was finally going to get to cross examine Bell. At first, it was about all his previous crimes and stays at the Institute. See, Bell had been arrested a few times before for attacking women. Myers wanted to point out that all these victims were also blonde. They all looked like Sherry and Deborah. He was given light sentences for these offenses like probation and five years in jail. He went to the Institute claiming he wanted treatment for attacking the females, but Myers pointed out that if these doctors would not have testified at his last trial, he would have received 30 to 40 years in jail. But because he went on his own to this Institute. Oh, and made it look as if he was seeking seeking help. help When he had attacked the last girl before Sherry. So he very much knows what the hell he's doing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. He would have been in jail and Sherry and Deborah would have never gotten hurt because he would have been behind bars. But because he was smart enough to be like, oh, well, if I go get help and make it look like. I'm I'm getting help willingly. And it worked. Because the judge only gave him five years instead of 30 to 40, like he should have gotten. So, Bell agreed with everything Meyer said, but said he was not guilty of any of them. So, he's agreeing, yeah, I did that to keep from going to jail forever, but I'm not guilty. I didn't actually do anything. The distortion of, like, the... I don't know. I mean, like, I did it, but I didn't, you know, do it. <laughs> it's... Well, to him, it's like, well, yeah, I did those things, but it's almost as if he's trying to say that they're, like, not bad things, so he's not guilty of right. anything. Like, okay, yeah, I did all of those things, but I'm not seeing what's bad about those things. Right. So, um, that was my computer. Sorry, guys. Myers asked Bell about the visions he had been claiming to have, and he wanted to know if Bell had them after the murders. And Bell said, no, they started when he was brought to the gates of hell and being accused of the crimes. So he wasn't 
Like, he didn't start having visions until he was arrested. But he, okay, no, that doesn't make <laughs> sense. Because he had these visions, and that's... So how did he call Crime Stoppers? I was going to say that he was calling Crime Stoppers about it, but they only happened once his trial started. Mm, nope. Like, he can't even keep his own story straight. So, let's see. Then, and I lost the, where I was here, people. He <laughs> acted confused by the questioning, going so far as to say he was preoccupied by something. So he kept, like... Every time Myers would ask him a question, he'd be like, what? I don't understand. Like, that doesn't make sense. Or he would be like, oh, I can't answer that because, you know, I was thinking about dogs. Like, he would just avoid answering the questions by claiming it didn't make sense or by claiming he wasn't paying attention in the first place to the question. He's too preoccupied by something else to listen to the question. Right. Myers then said, then asked, then your arrest brought you anxiety. Bell replied, pressures, because I am charged with this, but I will say it all is visions, visions from God. So he's trying to say <laughs> that God is the one sending him, him these visions now to try to save his life. <laughs> it's frustrating, isn't it? After this, every question he was asked by Myers, he only, his only response was silence is golden. So after, what? what? Where now, now he's saying like, <laughs> oh my gosh, he just rambled Where-ber. on. <laughs> oh my God, Bobby, you're killing me. Yeah, he rambled on for seven hours. And, and now he's, when he's getting cross-examined. He's like, whoa. Silence is golden, guys. Like Silence is golden. My lips are sealed from here on out. And he says, I'm not going to incriminate myself. And the families are present. So he's, he's already incriminated himself. They, so, I, I mean, right. we're, we're, let's, we're civilized it, it, people. Did he let's just a, now catch up in time? Like, was he... We're like, civilized people here. Let's, let's have a decent conversation. Have some tact. Let's not is talk he, about what happened to these people, these poor people's children. Right? That's in exactly front of them. no. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying like, I can't believe you guys are doing with this this with their family sitting right there. Like, I'm not gonna do that. Shame on you, tisk tisk. Well, Judge Smith is like beyond frustrated by this. So he is like, we're going to lunch. Like, I can't take this anymore. Go to lunch. Go to lunch. Have a recess. Well, after- or think it over on the jungle gym. <laughs> after lunch, Meyer started his questioning again, but this time he asked the Smith and Helmick family to sit out of the courtroom, hoping that would make Bell answer his questions because, you know, he had said, I can't yeah, talk can't to you about that this. can't use that as an excuse yeah, anymore. His right. excuses. It did not work. His reason now for not answering was. Um, he said, would be broad, it would be broadcast to the world and then the families would hear it. So regardless, he can't answer because the families are going to hear what it's always he says. Be something. But his ramblings on beforehand, none of that matters anymore. Well, no, because he was just talking about nonsense that had nothing to do with the murders. Now, the prosecutor's asking him, like, legit questions like, where were you? Did you do this? 
blah, blah, and he blah. Suddenly and can't he's like, speak. Mm, no, mm, silence is golden, sir. Not incriminate myself. Well, there might be a fly on these walls. <laughs> Myers asked one final question. Mr. Bell, while you were in the maximum security center, sometimes you would talk to yourself or to the wall. Bell answered, I would, I would say yes, I like to talk to myself, but I was protecting myself legally under the eyes of God. And on July 11th, 1985, around 11 o'clock, did you make the statement, I thought I threw the telephone pad away? Myers asked. Bell answered, yes, I did. All right, well, that... Okay. Okay, well, that means you're guilty. Have a nice day. So he was saying that out loud to himself in his, in his in jail his cell. cell. In his cell. Just mm-hmm. like, damn it, I thought I threw that fucking legal pad away. <laughs> Dang it, but I didn't. It was still left right by the phone. Son of a bitch. Well, after this... A couple of guards that were assigned to standing outside his cell testified. So they had been making guards stand outside his cell the whole time he's been in jail because he talks to himself. They said that they were required to write down when Bell was talking to himself or them. He figured out pretty quickly they were taking notes and would remind them to write things down or talk louder than normal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, secretary. Did you get that down? Read that back to me. No, that's not quite what I said. This, This is what I'm trying to say. Scratch that. I feel like Bobby's head hurts. You know, the dude wants to play the the dude wants to play the crazy card but then is blatantly handing out information <laughs> to the extent where he treats like the damn prison guards like his personal assistants did you get that i thought i told you dictation 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 <laughs> pay attention i am talking to you i should have thrown the pad away go <laughs> Pay attention. (laughs) Keep up. We've got much more to speak about. So after those (laughs) guards testified, then more psychologists were put on the stand by the defense. That was like the defense's like thing is psychologists. Psychologists. Um, Because they didn't even think Bell was competent to stand trial. Like, that's what they were going for. Like, he's so insane, he shouldn't even be standing trial right now. For two hours. So they they sent the jury out because at this point the defense is like, I don't think he's competent to stand trial. So to figure that out, the jury isn't allowed to be there. They have to, like, interview these psychiatrists with just the judge and the two lawyers present and Bell present. See what I'm saying? Yeah. I so it, they did this for two hours. Just interviewing just psychologists inter- with him in the room. Yeah. Okay. To get their opinion. Well, pretty much the judge is like, no, he's competent. Like after th- these two hours. He's very much aware of what is going on around him and what the hell he's doing. Well, yeah, because when these psychiatrists were questioned, it came to light 
that Bell had been making comments to one of the assistants on the defense team because she was blonde. He had stuck his finger into her ear and was calling her Elizabeth Smith when her name was Elizabeth Levy. This was because it was Dawn's middle name was Elizabeth. So he like was obsessed with his defense attorney's assistant. It was just, I'm sorry. And he gave her a wet willy? It was just sitting there like fondling her ear. Poking in her ear. And he tried. Nobody, did anyone put a stop to that? Well, he tried to kiss her and even blew her kisses while he was on the stand. Sw- while he was being questioned. All he would say to this is like, silence is golden. When they were like, did you do this to my assistant? Meh, silence is golden. They all watched you. <laughs> they all, wa- they that, all watched you do it. That poor girl. Get her the hell away from this prick. He has an obvious problem. Like, he has a problem. Oh, oh yeah. He's not insane. Like, he's... No, he's I, a sexual predator. Yeah, he just... Yeah, he has a fucking problem. Or at, at least some kind of predator. We don't know. Obviously, the two bodies yeah, I, and his history, there was never any actual ne- history of re- sexual assault, well, right? Well, his thing is is that the people that he had been arrested for previously he never like the one girl he got caught in the middle of trying to kidnap her so he never had the opportunity to do anything to her and then the other one was a 10 year old girl he was calling and making obscene phone calls to like a 10 year old he was making nasty phone calls too yeah i mean the guy and because of like twisted, the but... body decomposition they couldn't tell if he got well swirling called a psychiatrist dr diane ruth ballingstead to the stand and bell said to her off the record you're beautiful i love blondes in a professional way uh-huh she stated that in an earlier interview, Bell repeatedly said he was going to marry Don Smith today and even invited her to the wedding. Okay, in a professional sense, is he trying to say that his profession is killing? Like, you are beautiful in a professional way, as in I'm going to professionally murder you later if I ever get you alone. All I could think of was major pain. <laughs> Killing is my business, ladies, and business is good. <laughs> you can't do that. That movie like gets me and spent every time. It's like the best freaking movie. It's an awesome movie. <laughs> I know. What does that mean though? Like you're beautiful in a professional way. Like she looks professional. I don't know what it means, Samantha. Like, he's <laughs> he's fucking psycho. He's just like. Uh, you're blonde. All, that's all you're blonde, off the record. So off the record, <laughs> you're hot. And you're invited to my, my wedding, wedding. That I'm not going to actually have with this girl that I killed her sister. I can't believe that he, I knew that he was just romanticizing this relationship between him and Dawn on his head. Like, I'm sure yeah. he's played out their entire relationship, like meeting each other and hanging yeah. out. And, and it's freaking scary as shit. And he legitimately feels like all of these events took place, but they've all happened in his head. Yeah. Well, 
two more hours of testimony from psychologists. Four hours total. Four hours. Judge Smith finally decided that Bell could stand trial. He's like, dude ain't insane. He's, no, he's a pervert and a sexual predator. So the jury came back. The trial continued with Swirling playing a video of Bell while he was in his cell. He was talking to him, say, he was talking, saying things like he was going to marry Dawn, that she was waiting for him, that he would be home before Christmas. After that, court adjourned for the day. So the defense is like, come on, man, he's super crazy. He thinks he's marrying this yeah, girl's sister but if, but if he's having if he only knows about sherry and debbie through visions how the fuck does he even know about dawn because he saw her in the newspaper and he's like so attracted to her because she's blonde too he was looking at the newspaper and had a vision but you also have to remember he has guards standing outside of his door writing down everything he's saying and he's oh, i'm sure he also discussed the wedding date with them like what are you guys thinking like should we do a spring wedding a winter wedding i don't know do you think the judge will just marry us in the courtroom while i'm on trial is what he really be? wants and and also he's now being videotaped inside <laughs> of his cell did he like really think that like as soon as Dawn saw him, that she would just, like, fall madly in love uh, with him or something. Apparently. It's, like, <laughs> insane to me. The insane. next day. Insane in general. Yeah. The next day, the defense called a few more doctors before finally resting their case. The prosecution called an FBI agent to ask if he felt Bell was lucid during all the interviews he witnessed after he was arrested. His answer was yes, that Bell was aware and knew what was being asked of him. Swirling asked if Bell admitted any guilt during the first two days, The agent and the agent said yes, but that he said bad Larry Jean Bell did it, not good Larry Jean Bell. Right. So he told the FBI agent straight up, like, yeah, all those things happened. It but all it was happened. The bad Larry, not, not, the, not good the good Larry. Larry. Myers asked, "Isn't that an interview tactic?" Which the agent said, "Yes." So apparently, FBI kind of does that, like it's a kind of bait situation where they're like, "We know you didn't do it, but maybe the bad part about you did it. Can you like tell us about the?" bad part of you and then the person's like oh, okay so i can compartmentalize this and be like oh it wasn't the good me oh so they're trying to pin the whole like good larry bad larry on the fbi coaxing him into doing that yes <clears throat> and the fbi is like yeah we do that and bell took the bait like flat out yeah he confessed he was like yeah the bad larry did it so you're absolutely right <laughs> is there a... what do they win <laughs> You know what? You're right. Yeah, the bad Larry did it, not the good godly Larry. Well, after that, both lawyers rested. So this this was how many days of trial? The 14th day of trial. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Two weeks of this. Oh, my Lord. Um, The 
next day, lawyers do their final statements. Bell stayed quiet during Myers' closing argument, but had an outburst as soon as swirling started. So his own lawyer, he was like, no, I got shit to say. Judge Smith reminded him that he would kick him out of the trial, but he didn't listen. He actually jumped up in the middle of his lawyer's closing argument and asked Don to marry him. Y'all, time out, time out. Yeah, I, I, I get it. You're talking to the lawyer and whatever. Um, Don, will you, will you marry me? We have an officiant right here. <laughs> like, I get oh. y'all are trying to do a thing. I get it. That's great, neat. You know, cool for you guys. I'm trying to do m- my wife. Like. Uh... In the courtroom it doesn't, right now. It honestly doesn't surprise me. No, <laughs> like, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me. And it didn't surprise Judge Smith either. He called him out on his theatrical performance and said he was just trying to keep his act up. But he did call a short recess anyway because, you know, you just, in front of the jury, asked this murder victim's sister to marry you. Like a lunatic. Good lord. I'm trying to envision that. And it just like. Because you also have to. The absolute shock. Like the shock but not shock on people's faces. I feel like of him just being like the love of my life. Ever since that one day in the newspaper, I saw you and my visions. I just knew that we had to get married immediately. (sighs) Well. I prepared my vows. In my cell last night. <laughs> guard B wrote them all down for me. <laughs> guard Lovely. guard C is making you a veil. Guard A is my best man. <laughs> <laughs> well, the judge also told Swirling to get his client under control. He's like, I'm sick of this. I'm kicking him out. Like, get him <laughs> under control. Swirling obviously can't control his no. ass because he only outbursts during his portion of the trial. Well, after the recess was over, Swirling again asked for a mistrial because of the prejudice that Bell's involuntary acts might have on the jury in this case. So he's now saying, like, even in the in the beginning, he was like, I want him to do these outbursts because it's going to show how crazy he is. Now he's like, nope, mistrial, because they've heard all of these crazy things. Like him proposing to her, they're definitely going to find him guilty. Because who does that? Right. So now he's like... He's being harmful to his own defense. Right. I can't be effective as an attorney because he won't stop. Right. So now he's trying to get a mistrial because of the things he's blurting out in this trial well judge smith is like no hell to the no sir nope we've endured this for 14 (laughs) days it's done it's over with i've had enough of you yeah he's like nope sorry you're i'm not giving you a mistrial here as soon as swirling tried to speak again bell had another outburst so after sending the jury back out again judge smith had another pointless talk with Bell, and it was finally decided to take him out of the courtroom. So he got kicked out of his own trial because the judge was like, I've had enough of you, dude. Yeah, there has to be some kind of provision for instances like that where uh, a defendant 
or I mean for anyone in the courtroom, defendant or you know whatever. Well, I mean they can they, have they can have like family members of victims kicked out of the courtroom. Like a defense attorney can have a family member kicked out of courtroom for crying. Well, I'm just saying. So if, how is this dude like? Well, I'm just saying if if a defendant needs to be there um to be a part of his own trial, faces accusers, yada yada yada. But if they're constantly disruptive, intentionally yeah, disruptive, right? They're not cooperating with their own defense. They're being belligerent. They're essentially, you know, I'm air quoting contempting in contempt of court. They have to be able to remove him and still proceed. Otherwise, you could end up having people whose trials last years because they get in the courtroom, they make it five minutes in, outburst so, you know, obnoxiously over and over and over again that there's no progress made. They're at that point preventing themselves from a speedy right. trial. They're, you know what I'm saying? There has yeah, to be a provision for that. Well, Swirling tried to ob- object to this. Like, he didn't want him thrown out, but again, it was overruled. The judge was like, I've warned him multiple times. Like, we're done. After Swirling was finished with his closing argument, the jury retired to the jury room and took only 55 minutes to deliberate. They came back with their verdict at 6.20 p.m. on February 23rd. He was found guilty of kidnapping and murder. And I didn't really understand, but apparently in the United States, you can't be sentenced on the same day as you're found guilty. Like, they have to wait two days. I don't know. Yeah, it was like something weird. I don't know if that's still the case, but like back then they were like, so they found him guilty, but didn't sentence him for another two days. Right, because they have a sentencing hearing. Yeah, it's a separate hearing. So they have like this actual trial, and then they wait two days, and then he, he has a sentencing hearing where now the lawyers are going to argue, like, does he deserve the death penalty or does he deserve life? So it's like a whole nother trial, and they do the same exact thing. They call witnesses. They do all of the same crap but he's already found guilty Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of all right so what do we do with him now two days later they at his sentencing the prosecution put dawn on the stand they used the tape recording of the phone calls where bell had told her she was next to prove he was going to commit another murder um once dawn left the stand bell turned to dawn in the courtroom and said Look into my eyes, special angel. It is guaranteed if you will accept my hand in holy matrimony, will you marry me, my singing angel? I think I just barfed in my mouth oh a little my bit. Oh my God, I know. Like, ugh, the like the creepy skin crawlies that yeah. you get from that. Just like pure disgust, right? It's like, who the fuck do you think you are, sir? If I was, if I was her ugh. fucking mom or dad, I would have leapt. I would have leapt across the freaking yeah. barrier and just beat the shit out of him. Stop talking to my fucking daughter, you psychopath. You already killed one of them. I just, I'm sorry. I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> she called him, sir. You're disgusting, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that, I felt like you should have followed it with, good day. I said good day. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Just fucking be done with his ass already. Right? Well, Myers quickly interrupted this ordeal. And again, the judge had to ask the jury to leave because 
they don't want the jury to be swayed by his craziness asking her to marry him every five seconds. Um, once again, Swirling put Belle on the stand, but he refused to answer any questions this time, claiming he was too tired, cold, hungry, and that it was just time for him to go home. Like, <laughs> um, uh, you know what? This has been fun, but I'm kind of over it. I'm I'm just gonna head home, make some soup, <laughs> you know, kick my feet up, read a book, get a blanket. I just um, got rejected since, by my sweet sweet angel, and I need to go cope back home for a little while. Right? It's insane. Well, because of this, <laughs> sorry, swirling like, tried. I just need to go back home again to get a mistrial because he's like. Look at him. He's insane. Like, you can't tell me he's not insane. But again, Judge Smith was like, no. <laughs> I like not, this judge. Not buying it. No. I like him. No. Nope. He is not putting up with this dude's bullshit. He said it was obvious Belle was putting on a show to prove mental illness. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to adjourn court for today <laughs> and not be involved in this show anymore for today. The next day started with Myers pleading for the death penalty. Like, he, like, wants Bell to be killed. Okay. He explained to the jury the lack of mercy he had shown to Sherry and brought up the last will and testament. Like, he forced her to write. Then Myers took a pen that had been found in the shepherd's house, and he laid it on the jury box and said... The pin was passed to Sherry Smith. Some good will come from this. Her last words. We now pass this pin to you. Sign your name to the right sentence. So he's like legit. Like he made her. Power move. Yeah. He said, let us never again hear the horrible bell ringing of sadism. No consequence, no remorse, and no sorrow. Let your verdict bring a sweet, sweet sound to Sherry Smith. So he's like, you have the power. Use the pen that he forced her to write her last will and testament to sign his death warrant kind of a deal, which is pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. After this, Mr. Swirling addressed the jury and began pleading for Belle's life. He tried to say that Belle didn't ask for this, for his affliction. That it was given to him. He's obviously never been a blonde woman. <laughs> Are you talking about the defense attorney? Yeah, the one who's fighting for him. Like, um, it, was, it took me a minute. I you. Like, I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> so he's saying he's a, he has an affliction that was given to him. He said it clouded his mind and something in his head makes him do these things. He pointed out the way Belle talked and acted in the courtroom, saying he had to be mentally ill to act that way. He begged for his life on the fact that Belle's family loved him, and another family shouldn't have to experience loss. His family loved him. His ex-wife and son fled the state to get away from his ass. Right, but his parents and his siblings actually really did care about him. So his family was in the courtroom this whole time also, like, crying and 
begging for him not to be well i mean that executed. makes sense when when a killer does these things not only are his victims and their families victimized but their own families are right. victimized too especially if like he just seemed like an average everyday kind of 30 something year old dude to his family okay yeah. after this it was up to the jury to decide on bell's sentence it took them two hours and 15 minutes to reach a verdict. They decided to give Larry Jean Bell the death penalty for the murder of Sharon Faye Smith. After asking Bell if he had anything to say and him answering no, Judge Smith sentenced Bell to die by electric chair on May 15, 1986, between the hours of 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Then Bell was let out of the courtroom. Well, obviously... He was not executed on that day at that time because he still had to stand trial for Deborah. Right. And that court hearing went completely differently. Okay. He didn't have outbursts. He didn't try to act insane. He just pretty much sat there the whole time and dealt with it. I'm kind of surprised, to be honest, that he didn't try and use a different kind of method, you know, go in there acting super remorseful and trying to throw out some other, you know, excuse, some, you know, oh, you know, I was misguided and blah, 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 whatever. I thought I was doing the Lord's work and really, you know, whatever, blah, 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 and and trying some other way to weasel out of it. I feel like once they got to Debbie's trial, and he already got his sentence from Sherry, which was like, you know, a big one for him. That was what I'm assuming his first time killing somebody. Right. Plus, she was, you know, the sister to the love of his life. I'm sure he felt like so defeated at that point of like, okay, why even fucking bother? I'm just going to sit here and deal with it. I'm just going to take it. Yeah. And let me tell you how different this trial was. Uh, Myers, so the same defense and prosecution. Myers only called like Deborah's parents and a couple more witnesses and then rested. And Swirling, when it was his turn, stood up and said, Your Honor, Mr. Bell will not present a defense. The defense rests. They did. So he just went like a no contest. He, yeah, he just said, We have no defense. We don't want to ans- ask questions. We're just going to sit here and wait pretty much um after that they did their closing arguments um when swirling gave his closing argument he did not even really try to defend his client at this point he um did not question any witnesses he had no defense um all he really was trying to do is like (laughs) really just show up because he had said he wasn't guilty they had he already has a death sentence hanging over his head there's not really much argument you can make what are they going to do find him not guilty for killing deborah they already did for for sherry for sherry uh the jury retired to the verdict room on march 27th they returned in like a little over an hour found him guilty they read him his the verdict he showed no emotion he just stood there and took it the yeah. sentencing was pretty much the same he was already getting the death penalty but Myers fought for it again anyway like 
Just in case. Just in case we'll get in with two death penalties. And they did. Damn. Bell would not be executed on the day that he was said to be executed for Deborah either, which would have been May 18th. Because, you know, they do the try to get out of the death penalty thing, the appeals. Right. He ends up spending 10 years on death row. And in September of 96, when all his appeals were exhausted, uh, the Supreme Court set his execution day for October 4th, 1996. And the most crazy part... 96? 96. He spent 10 years on death row. Gotcha. Trying to appeal his case. Uh, both times that he got the death penalty, he it was said he would be killed by electric chair. By this point, because he was kind of grandfathered into the execute, like the death penalty... The laws had changed in South Carolina, so they were now doing lethal injection, not the electric chair. But inmates on death row that were on death row before the change had still got the electric chair? Had the option to choose. Really? They could choose the electric chair or lethal injection. Those are the only two options? Yes. Which I think it's really funny that he got choose just like he made sherry choose right mm. yeah and how ironic uh, like the irony of that one is like crazy so on october 4th 1996 at the age of 46 years old he chose to die by electric chair with really no final words but claiming to the very end that he was jesus christ did you have? Oh, to... by this time he changed his name to Jesus Christ. Yes. Oh, he was Jesus himself. He was the Messiah, and his death. He's he's trying to turn himself into a martyr. Yeah. Do we have any information? Did he get a last meal? We don't. I don't know any of that. I always find that interesting. They eat the weirdest shit. They do eat the craziest stuff and a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's weird. I do know that he died, the suspect, and two other disappearances. So there's two unsolved murders that he could have possibly committed, but they just don't have the proof to link him. Oh, to pin them on him? Yes. Around that same area? Yes. And two girls that were blonde and blue-eyed, and it was around the same exact time. Well, one was in 1984, so the year before Sherry, and then the other one was in 1975 when he had oh. gotten caught trying to kidnap the other girl. Oh, so Sherry might not have been his first victim ever. No, but gotcha. he's the first one. She's the first one that got proved to be his victim. So technically, he could be a serial killer if they could prove he did these other murders but they haven't been able to prove that he did them. Holy so it's just crap. recorded that he's killed two people because he never confessed to anything. No, like he was you never know, going to. Silence is golden. <laughs> Sorry. And that is the stupid messed up case of Larry Jean Bell. Larry Jean Bell, like talking about Larry Jean Bell. I, <laughs> well, you got to like... Also, I'm sure he liked talking about Jesus Christ, too, since he became Jesus Christ. Mm. Holy smokes. Yeah. That, what a wild story, man. That guy is just, 
he was bonkers, but not in the way that he was trying to make everyone think he was. No. I know he was crazy, but shitty at making himself look crazy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I think my favorite person in the story is Judge Smith because he's just like, no, knock the shit out. Like, we know you're acting. I like him. Like, we know you're putting on a show. Like, nobody's stupid here but you, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the -the off-the-wall things, and I think this case caught me because of the fact that he was calling the family for so so many weeks afterwards. Yeah, for so long. Because he just had this... Tormenting them. Fascination with Dawn. And And I will go on the record and say that Sherry's family forgave him a long time ago, actually, because they were a pretty religious family. Um, Sherry's sister Dawn wrote a book about her whole experience with... How old was she at the time? I don't remember. It just says she was older. So if Sherry was 17, maybe... So like 18. 19. 18 to 20, maybe? Yeah, I think she was going... She was like in her first year of college. So okay. she was a freshman in college. And she like... When this happened, she had to leave college and come home and like help with her family. Right. Her mom, I'm sure, was a mess. A hot mess. Yes. Well, those poor folks. But I would what? I don't know if I would have kept picking up the damn phone. Like well, to talk I mean, to but him. you have to remember the cops were in their oh, house. Oh, they were like kind of making them yeah, do it that, so they could try to find him. That and they didn't know that she was dead yet. Yeah, th- at the time, at the beginning of the phone calls, they didn't know she was dead. He just kept calling and, and giving, then leading them on. I think they, as horrible as it was, they were like, we have to keep answering the phone so they can try to trace these phone calls. But yeah, it's I'd probably be the same as you and be like, no, I'm not talking to that I'm person. not entertaining you, sir. Yeah. Sorry. No, thanks. Sorry, not sorry. <sighs> All right. Holy smokes. Well, so we did a longer one this week. Um, and you know, personally, I liked it. I thought it was a great story, and I liked it being a little longer. Why don't y'all listening let us know? Do you like the longer episodes, or do you like the shorter episodes, or do you want to mix like we're doing now, where we got some short ones and some long ones? I think that's probably what we're gonna end up continuing to do, where we have some short stories and some long stories, however long the story takes to tell. But let us know. You can uh, reach us at missingmurderedhaunted at gmail.com. And if you have case suggestions that you want to hear, you can send those there, too. You can uh, also find us at, what is it, uh, Missing Murdered Haunted on Instagram? Yes. And we're on Facebook, Missing Murdered Haunted Podcast. So reach out to us there. Follow us. They'll have, we'll have some uh, pictures from today's case on Instagram. And Facebook. And Facebook. So... If you liked it, let us know. Also, hop on wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give us five stars. Leave a comment. Share it with your friends so they can uh, check us out, too. I know we had fun making it. Hopefully, y'all had fun listening to it. And so were your friends. So I guess we'll see y'all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.